you have uh, come out to join us this morning. I'm a bit of a different face. You don't normally see me standing up here. My name is Pastor Brock, and I'm excited to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles. How many of you have something like this at your house? Maybe not quite as big. Something to this type of effect that you keep photo. None of you? There we go. All right. Participate, please. All right. We have these things all over the place at our house. There's about 30 of them, I would say. Um, And my wife does a great job with these of taking pictures that we have taken over, uh, that we, that's funny, that she has taken over, over the years of uh, our marriage and, and our lives, and she puts them together, and she just does a wonderful job with these, and I'm sure many of you have things like this at your house, and, and uh, we enjoy these. My kids really enjoy these. They periodically pull them out and just kind of flip through these, and they take a look at them, and they tell little stories, and they remember the different things that took place, just, just like you guys do, I'm sure. But I wonder, I wonder what it would be like if, uh, like once a month, I would pull this out, and we would, we would flip through it as a family. Now, the, the first month, we, we'd tell stories, and we'd look back at it, and we'd see it, and, and we would th- it would be pretty cool. First month, we'd do that. And then the second month, we'd pull it out, and we'd, we'd kind of flip through it, and, and we'd look at it, and we'd tell stories, and um, like us older people do, we'd probably embellish and adjust our stories a little bit to make it a little more exciting, and, but they would get it, and the third month, we'd do it, and Six or seven months in of us pulling this out and flipping through this thing and looking at it and, and seeing it and telling the same stories. And after a while, I kind of think that maybe, maybe our kids would start to roll our eye, their eyes a little bit when, oh my goodness, dad, again? Are you kidding me? Like, how many times can we possibly do this? It's the same photo album. It's the same scrapbook. It has the same stuff in it. Yeah, yeah, we get it. You did this. We were in Florida. It was hot. Blah, blah, blah. Move on. And it would kind of get mundane. It would kind of get to the point that, that it would lose its excitement. It wouldn't have its same gusto that would come with it. it. It wouldn't bring the same energy and excitement that it was really intended to bring. And we'd lose the power that might come with it or the, the grasp that it should have. This morning, we're going to, here in a few minutes, a little while, we're going to have communion. We're going to worship the Lord through the Lord's Supper. And sometimes I wonder, I don't wonder, I know what's in my heart. Sometimes I wonder if, us as a, if we as a group of believers, we've almost done that with the Lord's Supper. Like we've, we've I'll bet some of you in here, have done this act of worship of the Lord's Supper hundreds of times in your life. 
I believe I have. I didn't really go back and count it up. But I bet some of us, when we walk into church and we see these tables at the corner, we're like, oh, Lord's Supper, just another extra thing at the end of the service. And we kind of, we've, we've taken something that is enormous and we've made it blah in our lives. And it doesn't pack the punch that it ought to pack. It doesn't hold the weight that it should hold. And it doesn't stir our hearts the way that it ought to stir our hearts. And so this morning, I tell you, this, this past week I've, I've been studying this, I've been reading about it, I've been listening to messages about it, and, and, and I hope that just through us talking for a couple of minutes as we, before we do this awesome act of worship, of remembering our Lord and Savior, I hope as we talk for just a couple of minutes that maybe your hearts will be re-stirred and removed to feel this the way that we ought to feel it. For this to hold the position that it ought to hold in our lives. Because this is a big deal what we're about to do this morning. This is no little thing. This is no extra to a service. This is the service. And so this morning, I hope it grabs you and holds you. And I hope you'll remember every time that this happens how big of a deal this is. I want to read in Luke 22. I'm going to read a little bit longer of a section, so please stay with me. Maybe try to hear it like you're hearing it for the first time. One of the things that happens is we, we hear these things so many times that we just don't, we don't hear them the same way anymore. Luke 22 Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. We're going to come back and talk about that in a minute. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He, Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the disciples with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it, has or until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. He starts in in verse 1, and he tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was at hand, and we're at this thing known as the Passover. We really need to understand the Passover a little bit for us to grasp this whole picture. Because if we don't get the Passover, we're not going to get the fullness, the completeness of what's actually going on here. So we need to go backwards in time, like 1,500 years from when this passage is taking place. And when we go backwards in time, 1,500 years, we come across this group of people known as the Jews, the Israelites, and they're in a location known as Egypt. And they were in Egypt because a guy named Joseph was sold by his brothers, and that's where he ended up. Actually, they're in Egypt because God sent them there, but that's neither, like, the human part of it says a guy named Joseph was sold there. And they have grown in size, like there are a lot of them, like two million of them in Egypt, to the point that the Egyptians are a little concerned about the number of Jewish people that are in their country. Because, hey, if there's two million of them, maybe they can decide to be in charge and we're, it's no longer our country. So the Egyptians turn them into slaves. And they do all this horrible stuff. If you want to really look at it, take a look at the beginning of the book of Exodus. I don't want to get all into that. But God uses a man named Moses to get these people out of here. And Moses goes to the leader of the Egyptians named Pharaoh. And he goes to the Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. You guys are familiar with this. If you've been to Sunday school, you've heard these stories, right? He says, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So God sends these different plagues and we've talked about, you've heard about these plagues and a plague comes and there's all sorts of bad things that happen and Pharaoh's like, yeah, I'm still not letting them go. I'm still not going to do it. So finally, God's like, all right, here we go. Let's do the one that's going to end all of this. And God tells the nation of Israel, what I need you to do is this. I am going to send an angel tonight. And this angel is going to come and this angel is going to kill the firstborn of every household. Can you imagine that? said, but here's the deal. I need you to kill a lamb and I need you to take the blood of that lamb and I need you to put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel sees the blood on the doorpost, the angel will pass over your house. But every house that doesn't have blood on the doorpost, the firstborn will die. Needless to say, the next morning, 
when they woke up, it was a harsh situation in Egypt. There were a lot of dead children. But the Jews had been spared from this because every one of them that put the blood on the doorpost, the angel passed over their home. So Pharaoh said, Moses, get them out of here. I'm done. No, this is it. I can't handle it anymore. You've got to go. Take them and go. The Bible tells us that they actually left in such a, like, urgent way that they didn't even have time, like the bread that they had prepared, they didn't even have time to put leaven into the bread. So they just basically grabbed their bowl with their dough and they headed on their way. And then God institutes with the nation of Israel, he institutes this yearly feast called the Passover. He says, I want you to remember this thing that I did. I want you on a yearly basis to think about how I brought you out of Egypt into your land. And I've given you this wonderful land. And I want you each year to set aside time to remember this. It was something known as the Feast of the Passover. Now, I don't know what you picture in your mind when we talk about these feasts, these things that are more of like an Old Testament idea. I, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm just really weird in this. I'm not sure. But like, really, when I hear this Passover, you know what I think of? Thanksgiving. Like in my mind, it's just kind of like, I don't, I don't have another, I know it's the wrong time of the year, so don't correct me on that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that's the time of the year. I just kind of picture you hear Passover feast or this Passover idea and it's a festive, festivities and, and you know what I think of? Thanksgiving. And they did eat. But it wasn't really like Thanksgiving. It mentions it, if you caught it in uh, verse number 7, he says, Then came the day of unleavened bread. By the way, unleavened bread. This is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, connecting all the way back to Egypt. Uh, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So there's this one day that Israelites would come to Jerusalem they would bring a lamb with them, a year-old sheep. They would bring this lamb with them. And this one day each year, they would take this lamb into the temple and this lamb would be killed. The, we're given the picture as, as it's been studied that in reality, they basically take this lamb and they, they hold this lamb down. And they put their hands on it. Some historians believe that it's almost like they... Almost like they like lay on it and they, they put the weight of themselves on it and as they do it, the priest comes by and kills this lamb. And the blood of the lamb is spilt. And it's essentially like, like they're taking all of their sin for that year and they're laying it and they're just putting the weight of all of that sin onto this lamb. And this lamb takes the penalty, the punishment, 
the weight of all of that sin on itself. This is the day that we're talking about. This is what's happening here. And Jesus says something really interesting. And, and I've read this passage a number of times, but it, it just kind of slipped past me. Real quick, look at verse 16. Jesus says this as he's talking to his disciples on this day. This day when, understand, thousands of lambs would have been killed that day. Like, this is no pretty Thanksgiving feast. This is no, I don't know, beautified idea that we have. The nation of Israel was all come together in Jerusalem, and thousands of lambs have died for the sake of the sins of all of the people. This isn't a pretty picture. I'm afraid that sometimes we paint it out to be that. And it's not. It's a rather grotesque picture that's happening here. But it shows us how much, how much God hates sin. How much God desires that sin is dealt with and taken care of. But listen to what he says in verse 16. Jesus says, For I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Man, this is, might have missed this. I missed this for the longest time. This is so beautiful. He's telling them that we're never going to do this again until this whole action comes to completion. This won't happen again until this whole thing reaches its fullness and is completed. I think, all right, Pastor, why are you making it? Who cares? Here's the thing. They've been doing this ritual yearly, Looking back to the Passover when they left Egypt. And Jesus is saying, you need to understand something. This thing you've been doing for hundreds of years that you think is actually pointing back to that is actually pointing ahead to something that's about to happen one day from now. And you will never, ever see this Passover thing again the same way. You will never see it again the same way because it is about to be fulfilled. It is about to come to its fullness. It is finally going to be completed because the weight that you keep putting on each one of those lambs, sorry, they're just a shadow. They're not the real thing. And all through scripture we see without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement, no remission, no forgiveness of sin. It can't happen. But you keep putting all of this weight onto these lambs, but those lambs can't do it unless the image of the real thing that they are a shadow of actually comes and completes it. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. It's about to happen. And you don't even know it. Man, like it, it, when I look at this and I think about it, you realize hundreds of years they've been celebrating something that's pointing them backwards when in reality it was pointing them forwards. It's crazy. And then Jesus says some other things here. He says a couple of other, like, listen, he says, he says, this is my body in verse 19, which is given for you. Do this. So he takes this piece of unleavened bread. You know what they think of unleavened bread? They're like, oh yeah, we didn't have leaven in our bread when we left Egypt. 
back there. Look, you're giving me bread and tell me to remember back there. He's like, no, don't remember back there. Remember me. This is my body. This is my blood. Remember me. It's, it's incredible. I thought about it and I've been looking at this and I'll be honest with you, I, I almost, like, <laughs> the disciples are clueless. They have no idea what's going on. I thought to myself, boy, I, I wish I could have been there to see this. The issue is, if I would have been there to see this, then I'd be clueless too. I'd have no idea what's happening. They don't get it. I honestly wonder, because just the things that we know, and, and I've done a little bit of teaching so far in my life, and uh, just a couple of things that I know as a teacher, I can see some of them, you know, <clears throat> Peter has a tendency to, to think, say without thinking sometimes. I can see Peter with his hand up, like, Jesus, you said this is remembrance of you, but it, you meant remembrance of that, right? Like, Peter's there, like, almost finishing sentences, uh, but he's saying the wrong words, like, this doing remembrance, the Passover. No, Peter, listen, just don't talk and listen. It's not about that. Stop thinking you know what's going on. You don't. It's about something that's going to happen in less than 24 hours. I also, as I think about this, you know, it's, as, we, as we think through who Jesus is, this is a really interesting piece in his life. You know, we, we argue, not argue, we discuss and we, we understand the doctrines and, and we talk about in like Philippians 2 that God... Uh, humbled himself and became a man, but he, he, he's still God. And we talk a lot about the deity of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is God. And man, is that heavily important. But we need to understand something. He is man too. You imagine something just for a minute. If you knew the fact that you were going to die 18 hours from now. As a person, that might weigh a little bit on you. You might feel that a little bit. Sometimes I think that, that we look at Jesus and, and almost give him this, well, okay, but, but he's God. And since he's God, he's kind of like a robot that's just checking off lists. Like, yeah, he's in a human. He's man, but it's just progressing down through the list of things that the Father said he has to do. And so he's not feeling any of this stuff. That hanging from a cross hurts less because he's God. If he's 100% man, he felt it just like you would have. But here's a really cool thing. He had an opportunity to have dinner with a group of people right before this happens. Meaning right before his death. Think about that. You're about to die and you have a chance to gather a group of people together to have dinner with them. That's pretty cool. And he gets this group of disciples together. These men that he has spent years with now. He's invested in their lives. He's put time into them. And he's been seeing them grow. And he's been teaching them stuff. I don't know about you. 
But I would be pretty selective if I had one meal left. Not only would I be selective about who was there, I'd be selective about what I talked about. We've seen it in movies, right? Seen it in movies, the guy's about to, somebody's about to die and they have their child sitting right next to them. They don't discuss the game. They don't talk about useless things. It's always a, hey, remember to. And he gives. That guy, right before he passes away, as he's talking to his son, who's right there, he gives the most valuable bit of information that he can give at that time. You know what Jesus gives? I need you to remember me. You don't get it yet, he's saying to the disciples. You don't get it, but trust me, you're gonna. And when you take this bread and drink this cup, I need you to remember what it points to. It is pointing to the greatest event in all of history. It is pointing to the ultimate act of love, of mercy, of grace, of power, of sovereignty. It's pointing to the ultimate of all that could happen, the fulfillment, the completion of this awesome act of God redeeming mankind to himself. It's pointing to that. And I hope and pray that's why you're here today. Because at some point in time, the miraculous nature of the cross of Christ impacted your life and you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And every time you take that bread and you drink that cup, your mind should be immediately drawn back to that cross. The greatness, the magnificence of God's love. It is no small thing that we do today. It is not some tiny little hollow ceremony. Now don't get me wrong. It doesn't give you some magical power either. It is an act of remembrance of Jesus fulfilling, completing the greatest act of all time. <clears throat> I, I wrestled with one other thing that I, <clears throat> I want to challenge some of you very directly with. Um, and some of you well, I'm just going to say it. There's an interesting piece in this. Verses 21 and 22 tell us that Judas is at this feast. He's already conspired with the chief priests. He's already figured out a way that he's going to get paid to betray Jesus. And he knows what he's about to do. He knows he is a part of what is going on here 
And then he is going to leave. He is going to turn his back on Jesus and he is going to betray him. Now, this is all in the will of God. God's sovereignty. God knew. He didn't trick Jesus into dying. I want to challenge some of you. I'd be the fool to think that in a gathering of people this size, that there aren't some people here that knowingly live the way of the world all week long and then come to church, put on a face and an act of worship, knowing full well that they're going to leave this place and live like the world the rest of this week. And I want you to understand, God will not be mocked in that way. You're not fooling God. There's no imitation worship, meaning there's no, there's no fake form of it. In the book of John, when John talks about this situation, John, Jesus says something very interesting to, to Judas in John that I think is, is valuable here. Jesus, right before Judas actually leaves this festivity that's going on here and goes out and actually works towards the act of betraying Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, whatever you're about to do, go and do it quickly. And in reality, I ask you, if you are here and you have every intent of just putting on a show while being here and then going and living like the world, cherishing sin, holding on to it, I ask you, please don't mock God that way. Just go. It's not what we are called to do. Now, understand, there's a difference. Some of us, myself included, we all wrestle with sin. We all struggle with sin. But there's a big difference between wrestling with sin, knowing that we, we have these things that tempt us, these things that hold us, these things that we are trying to battle through through the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference between that and me just submitting to it. And I know I'm going to leave here and this is the way I'm going to live. Please don't have anything to do with what we're about to do. Please don't. Because it's not what you're called to. I'd actually ask you, if that's true about you, repent. God wants you to worship him in this way. God wants you to love him. God wants you to live the way you ought to. Repent. For the rest of us, what an awesome opportunity we're about to have. We're about to be reminded through the eating of bread and the drinking of juice of the greatest act of all time. Man, that should excite us. I hope... I hope as we think about this, and I'm challenged with this personally, I want to be excited every time I see these communion tables when I walk into church. Because I know what it's pointing me to. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us.
thank you that we can have salvation through his blood. That he's taken our place on the cross. God, I pray that our hearts would be moved to live in response to what we are being reminded of today. We want to live the way you've called us to. We want to glorify you. And I pray that each time we do this, that we take the Lord's Supper, that we will be re-energized, re-motivated, and pushed into living the way you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.